Um, <clears throat> I want to start by uh, welcoming everyone uh, to the third lecture in the Terror Lectures in American Art, which is uh, the series is focused this year on the theme, A Contest of Images, American Art as Culture War. And uh, first, I want to also introduce myself. My name is John Blakinger. I'm the 2018-2019 Terra Visiting Professor of American Art here at Oxford. And before proceeding, I want to make an announcement. There will be drinks next week after the final lecture in the series. So I hope to see all of you there. And I also want to offer again this week a disclaimer uh, that I'm also going to be showing images that are related to death uh, and that are violent. So if you need to step out of the room, obviously that's not a problem. Okay. On January 1st, 1863, U.S. President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, an executive order that granted freedom to more than 3.5 million enslaved African Americans. The proclamation, signed in the midst of the American Civil War as a war measure, meant that slaves who escaped the Confederacy, the southern states that had seceded from the Union, would now have federal legal status as free. And as Union troops advanced across the South, the order eventually applied to 10 states in rebellion. The Emancipation Proclamation was followed after the war by the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which finally abolished slavery in the United States in 1865. But the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation occurred the same week as another very different presidential action. On December 26, 1862, the day after Christmas, the largest mass execution ever on American soil took place in the small frontier city of Mankato, Minnesota, at 10 a.m. Just a few weeks before, on December 6th, President Lincoln sent a directive to the frontier ordering the execution of 39 Native Americans, members of the Dakota, part of the Sioux Nation. They were condemned to death by hanging. The men had all been part of an uprising that came to be known as the U.S.-Dakota War, in which the Dakota, desperate for food, in part because the U.S. government failed to provide annuity payments and supplies as mandated in legally binding treaties, instigated attacks on white settlers, who subsequently repressed them with violence. Lincoln was under enormous pressure from these settlers to punish the Dakota, and not doing so risked encouraging vigilante violence on the frontier. In fact, Lincoln could have ordered many more Native Americans to death by hanging. 303 Dakota men were originally sentenced to death in Mankato by a military commission. 392 Dakota men were first tried in the commission's legal proceedings. President Lincoln, despite the pressures of the Civil War, re-examined these case records and commuted individual sentences, reducing the number of men condemned to death to 39. Another man was later reprieved. Lincoln reported to the U.S. Senate, quote, anxious to not act with so much clemency as to encourage another outbreak on the one hand, nor with so much severity as to be real cruelty on the other, I caused a careful examination of the records of trials to be made." End quote. But despite this careful 
examination, Lincoln's order still resulted in the largest mass execution in US history. How do we reconcile these two diametrically opposed events, events that took place at essentially the same time in American history, but point to very different mythologies of the American nation? On the one hand, the Emancipation Proclamation represents redemption for the original sin in American history, the institution of chattel slavery, which was legal across the 13 original colonies when the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776, and which subsequently persisted south of the Mason-Dixon line. The Emancipation Proclamation is rightly celebrated as one of Lincoln's most powerful actions in office, both in real terms and symbolically. It filtered through visual culture in the period as an act of national liberation, as seen, for example, in this image, which is from Harper's Weekly. On the other hand, the Mankato execution represents the failure of attaining redemption for another original sin in American history, settler colonialism. The executions remain a shadow on Lincoln's legacy, one typically overlooked in popular accounts and in common collective memory. The Mankato 38 have faded from view. They are, for many of us, forgotten. These events, now distant and, as I've said, forgotten, were forced back into memory by the artist Sam Durant through a sculpture he created in 2012 titled Scaffold. The work was first exhibited without controversy outside of the United States. It appeared in The Hague, Netherlands, in Edinburgh, Scotland, and at the contemporary art exhibition Documenta 13 in Kassel, Germany. The sculpture was made up of wooden planks and beams, a massive platform, metal steps and stairs. But the sculpture triggered an uproar when it appeared in the renovated sculpture garden at the Walker Art Center in Minneapolis in the summer of 2017. The structure's form was, according to Durant, a composite of seven infamous gallows from American history. I will list them. It recreated, one, the scaffold used to execute the Mankato 38 in 1862, so execution I've already uh, explained. But also, number two, the scaffold used to execute John Brown, the abolitionist who led a raid on a federal armory at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, in an attempt to initiate a slave re rebellion across the South in 1859. Three, the gallows used to execute the Lincoln conspirators, the three men and one woman who were convicted for assisting John Wilkes Booth in his assassination of President Abraham Lincoln and attempted assassination of other US government officials in 1865. And this event was also the first execution in US history of a woman. And then four, the gallows used to execute the Haymarket Martyrs, who led a labor revolt and bombing in Chicago in 1886. Five, the scaffold used to execute Rainey Bethia, convicted for rape and killed by the state in the last legally conducted public execution in US history in 1936. And six, the scaffold used to execute Billy Bailey, who was convicted of two counts of murder and who elected death by hanging the last hanging in US history, which was not a public execution. And then finally, the gallows used in the execution of Saddam Hussein. 
This litany of references, this history of capital punishment in the United States probably seemed very distant in The Hague, in Edinburgh, in Kassel, Germany. But it meant something more specific in Minnesota. The Walker Art Center, after all, is located in Minneapolis, only some 80 miles from Mankato, where the execution of the 38 Dakota men took place in 1862. The museum's sculpture garden is on land that once belonged to the Dakota. Durant's sculpture had previously been sited at great physical distance from its references, but also in completely different national contexts, where capital punishment would have been understood as a completely American phenomena, as something that happened over there, far away. After all, capital punishment was abolished in the Netherlands in 1870, in the United Kingdom in 1965, and in Germany after the Second World War. Now, located in close proximity to the work's primary historical sources, in the country where all of these executions occurred, the illusions are not so abstract. The abstract collapses into the specific, the local, into living memory. The way the sculpture forces the past back into mind is a more violent artistic gesture when that past persists for communities that could visit and see and experience the sculpture. Memories of the execution of the Mankato 38 are traumatic not simply because execution as artistic subject matter is disturbing and inherently uncomfortable, but because these memories are entangled with the experience of settler colonialism. The history of settler colonialism in Minnesota requires some elaboration. The conflict between the Dakota and white settlers that came to be known as the U.S.-Dakota War can be traced to 1851, when the Dakota leader Little Crow signed two major treaties with the U.S. government that ceded massive tracts of native land in what settlers called the Minnesota Territory. In exchange, the Dakota would receive regular monetary payments and goods. These treaties forced the Dakota onto a reservation, just a thin strip of land. But the encroachment of white settlement, which occurred in part because the US Senate had surreptitiously removed articles from the treaties that specified the boundaries of the land granted to the Dakota, caused destruction of Minnesota's natural habitat, the leveling of forests, the plowing of prairies. This destruction disrupted the ability of the Dakota to hunt, fish, farm and gather. Soon the US government began withholding annual payments. The Dakota leader, Little Crow, visited Washington DC dressed in Western clothes to renegotiate the treaties. He was rebuffed. Withheld payments, broken treaties, and environmental destruction led to food shortages and famine. The Dakota became desperate. A white trader, named Andrew Jackson Merrick, who frequently sold goods to the Dakota, is famously remembered for his complete indifference to this desperation. Quote, so far as I am concerned, let them eat grass or their own dung, end quote. These tensions exploded into violence in August 1862, when a band of Dakota killed five settlers, including Merrick, whose mouth was stuffed with grass. A series of raids and skirmishes followed. 
The war, such as it was, only lasted months. U.S. soldiers took thousands of Dakota captive and forced them into internment camps. Many were then tried and condemned to death by hanging. After the Mikado execution, the Dakota lost everything. All treaties were expunged. All Dakota expelled from Minnesota. A bounty of 25 U.S. dollars per scalp was offered for any Dakota found in the state. The case of the Mankato 38 and the larger U.S.-Dakota War represent the trauma of colonization. And in invoking this episode, I believe Sam Durant may have thought he was expressing empathy with indigenous people and unmasking the ideology of Manifest Destiny. But it is important to emphasize that Durant's sculpture is not about just a single historical episode. It references seven in total. And not all of these episodes can be read as examples of colonization or a miscarriage of justice. The men and women hanged in his seven case studies were not a unanimously sympathetic group. This is a fact missing from many accounts of Durant's sculpture, which tend to assume that the artist only selected instances that reflect the abuse of power. To me, this sculpture is actually very unclear, evoking episodes of execution that are contradictory, their social and political resonances inconsistent. For example, the Mikado execution is now understood by most historians as legally and morally reprehensible. The trials were rapidly processed by a military commission. On the last day of trials, the commission heard 40 cases, some resolved with guilty verdicts in just a matter of minutes. There was no due process. The Dakota were also tried as common criminals, not as legitimate belligerents of a sovereign power fighting in a war. And the trials did not take place in actual courtrooms or with standard court procedures. Perhaps worst of all, the proceedings were in English, a foreign language that the Dakota did not all speak or understand. But Durant's other cases are ambiguous. Rainey Bethia, for example, was convicted of raping a, a, excuse me, a 70-year-old woman. He also killed this woman. Bethia was not charged with murder, only rape, so that he could be executed by public hanging. Otherwise, he would have received a conviction of death by electrocution, which would not have enabled a public spectacle. Hanging, by contrast, ensured an audience. The case attracted national media attention. Some 20,000 spectators attended. This photograph is shocking in its depiction of the mob. Bethia's executioner was also drunk at the time of execution. It is no wonder that this was the last public hanging in the US. The episode led to reforms in the application of the death penalty. The discussions of Durant's scaffold often reduced the sculpture to a sympathetic, if ill-conceived, gesture towards the Dakota, but I'm not sure what commentary Durant is making on these other cases, like Bethia's, whose execution became a disturbing public spectacle, but who is not a particularly sympathetic figure. In this way, I see Durant doing two opposite and contradictory things with Scaffold. He is drawn to historical episodes that reveal the failure of American justice and the powerful fault lines that pull American history and society apart. Oops, sorry, went ahead there. Uh, but he is also drawn 
to the spectacle of it all. He sees the gallows as another site of public fascination, of voyeuristic pleasure. He wants to fix the gaze of those 20,000 spectators viewing Bethia's execution back onto his own work. Scaffold contains political content, possibly critical content, perhaps, I'm not even sure, but it is also an indulgence in this spectacle. Something, and we talked about this at great length uh, last week. These two intertwined themes are present in historical accounts of the Mikado 38. The execution in Mikado took place on a large gallows structure that was purpose-built for the occasion, designed to allow the execution of all 38 condemned men in a single instance. The trap floor, trap floor dropped and everyone fell. I explored last week how murder became public spectacle and how vision is often part of these events, rituals which take place for people to see, to watch, and then to image and continually reimagine through keepsakes and postcards. The drama of mass death in a single instant at Mankato was similarly intended to increase the visual spectacle. It is interesting, given this fascination with visualizing death in America that we have seen in previous case studies, which is also this, this uh, name, Death in America, is also the title of Warhol's series of disaster paintings that we considered, uh, that there are actually no photographs of the Mankato execution. There were, however, prints that appeared in Frank Leslie's Illustrated Newspaper and Harper's Weekly. Engravings of the scene circulated widely. They appeared on commemorative trays. This is for Standard Brewing Company. Uh, and also commemorative spoons. These images are all triumphant, containing and reducing the violence of a mass execution to the gallows at center, a perfect square, faint in the distance, and emphasizing instead the perfect lines of troops in formation and the many spectators. The news coverage at the time similarly presented the scene in visual terms, even when only describing it with text. Newspapers often manipulated readers' responses by setting up a visual tension, one that is important for Durant's later work, between the beauty of the surroundings in Mankato and the reality of what happened. The New York Times focused attention on the scaffold structure and the spectacle of it all in this way. Quote, the instrument upon which the extreme sentence of the law was to be performed was constructed in a very simple yet most ingenious manner. It was erected upon the main street, directly opposite the jail, and between it and the river. The shape of the structure was a perfect square. Precisely at the time announced, 10 a.m., a company without arms entered the prisoners' quarters to escort them to their doom. The signal to cut the rope was three taps of the drum. All things being ready, the first tap was given, when the poor wretches made such frantic efforts to grasp each other's hands that it was agony to behold them. The second tap resounded on the air. The vast multitude were breathless with the awful surroundings of this solemn occasion. Again, the doleful tap breaks on the stillness of the scene. Click goes the sharp axe, and the descending platform leaves the bodies of 38 human beings 
dangling in the air. It was an awful sight to behold. 38 human beings suspended in the air on the bank of the beautiful Minnesota, above the smiling, clear blue sky, beneath and around the silent thousands, hushed to a deathly silence by the chilling scene before them. Durant's sculpture repeats this bizarre collapse of positive and negative. He translates the rhetorical device used in the New York Times into aesthetic terms, into experiential terms. Scaffold is deadly serious, but it looks to me like a jungle gym or a playground, the type of structure on which children run, play, climb, and laugh. A postcard shows one such structure in Minnesota, just an hour and a half from both Mankato and the Walker Art Center. The image is unsettling. It now evokes the gallows. Scaffold creates an ironic tension between the spectacle, the historical events, and a more contemporary resonance in common shared childhood experience. Images of the work as installed abroad show visitors responding to it in this way, clambering up its steps, playing in its shadows, circling on bicycles. Scaffold was fun. This tension is further reiterated by the work's sighting in the Minnesota Sculpture Garden, where it was positioned in ironic dialogue with a giant sugary cherry balanced precariously on an enormous spoon. That work by Claes Oldenburg and Kustja van Bruggen is also a fountain and sprays a spritz of water from the tip of its cherry stem. It conveys pop pleasure and humor, a sensuality in shiny red metal. Scaffold was also cited not far from a giant bright blue rooster by Katerina Fritsch. Scaffold looks plainly ridiculous between these works. And it's also intriguing to think about the spoon sort of recurring surreptitiously in this sighting. Durant might have imagined that such irony strengthens the charge of the work. Scaffold creates associations with the ludic, with playful fun, with the big red cherry and the blue rooster, but then subsequently punctures these playful associations as one suddenly becomes aware of the reference to mass execution. Three taps of the drum, click, goes the sharp axe. The work placates viewers as they first approach and then forces them into a state of discomfort. Scaffold therefore reflects a problem that we have encountered while examining Donna Schutt's painting Open Casket, which rendered the body of Emmett Till in a seductive sheen of oil pigment on canvas. And here's a detail. It gave that awful image a decorative appeal through paint that effectively transformed and transmuted historical reality into, as Parker Bright called it, black death spectacle. In Scaffold, the work does something similar but different. The look of the work is really not all that seductive or appealing. It doesn't look like much. But the playfulness of its associations and its sighting in a sculpture garden are completely at odds with historical realities it represents. What does the category of art as a philosophical construct do 
to memories of trauma and tragedy, to how those memories are experienced now. Many viewers believe that the work's historical references actually served a valuable educational purpose. The National Coalition Against Censorship, an anti-censorship organization, which I'll speak more about momentarily, argued that the work, quote, intended to create awareness about capital punishment and its historically disproportionate effect on people of color, end quote. Others found similar meetings in Scaffold. A curator at the Walker Art Center recalls seeing the work for the first time in 2012. Quote, I thought it was an incredibly powerful piece, which I read as a comment on the history of capital punishment and mass incarceration in the United States, end quote. But how does creating awareness even work? What is the comment the sculpture actually makes about capital punishment? I don't see one at all. I'm not sure visitors are made aware of history in their encounter with the sculpture, which does very little to reframe and resignify history. It only inserts historical associations into an aesthetic experience, which does not seem to me to resolve those histories in any way. The explanation of the purported content that the sculpture references seven infamous gallows cannot be learned from the sculpture alone without text explaining it. Nothing about the work's form expresses the reality of the work's content. In a statement from May, 2017, drafted in response to the complaints from the Native community, Durant explained the purpose of the work as not to, quote, cause pain or suffering, but to speak against the continued marginalization of these stories and people, end quote, to create that awareness. His comments reveal his own blind spots, which he openly admits to having about the work and its perception. Quote, I made Scaffold as a learning space for people like me, white people, who have not suffered the effects of a white supremacist society and who may not consciously know that it exists. It has been my belief that white artists need to address issues of white supremacy and its institutional manifestations. Whites created the concept of race and have used it to maintain dominance for centuries. Whites must be involved in its dismantling. However, your protests have shown me that I made a grave miscalculation in how my work can be received by those in a particular community. In focusing on my position as a white artist making work for that audience, I fail to understand what the inclusion of the Dakota 38 in the sculpture could mean for Dakota people. I offer my deepest apologies for my thoughtlessness. I should have reached out to the Dakota community the moment I knew that the sculpture would be exhibited at the Walker Art Center in proximity to Mankato. My work was created with the idea of creating a zone of discomfort for whites. Your protests have now created a zone of discomfort for me. In my attempt to raise awareness, I have learned something profound and I thank you for that." End quote. That discomfort 
is evident in the signs posted by protesters on the chain-link fence that surrounded the sculpture garden. In the photos that circulated online, these signs serve as textual labels that, as we saw with Parker Bright's response to Open Casket last week, effectively re-signify and reframe the work. Cultural genocide opportunist. This hurts native people. Respect Dakota people. Not your story. Feels like 1862. Execution is not art. Dakota genocide is not art. Take it down. One sign offered a $200 reward for scalp of artist. Updating the old reward offered by the state of Minnesota for Dakota scalps and inverting the irony of Durant's work back at the work itself. Durant also became the target of social media attacks, the type of Twitter abuse and internet outrage that is, again, a prevailing feature of the contemporary culture war. But these protests had a very different effect in the case of Scaffold in comparison to the case of Open Casket. While claims of cultural appropriation recur in both instances, there is also the suggestion from activists who protested Scaffold that the work triggered a powerful negative reaction, not because it reflected cultural appropriation that was self-serving to the artist and institution, but because it enacted the forced confrontation with a painful past. In other words, it forced people to remember. That was Durant's goal, education, awareness. But why should Native American communities be forced to remember in public spaces, in the museum, at the Walker Art Center, so near to where these events occurred? Why should they bear that burden when those memories had never even been forgotten? While the act of remembering is powerful, the uproar aimed at Durant and against Scaffold indicates that not everyone is in a position of privilege that allows remembering to happen in a purely intellectual or aesthetic manner. For some, it is too deeply intertwined with actual experience, with real life. Moreover, the protests also prompted different resolutions in these two cases. Donna Schutz defied protesters, claiming her work was motivated by empathy but expressing no regret, shame, or embarrassment. By contrast, Durant actually listened. He met with protesters, and he's seen here with the director of the Walker Art Center at the time, uh, Olga Vizo. Durant came to appreciate the perspective of the protesters. He ultimately agreed with them and supported the removal of his sculpture. The original plan had been to ritually burn the work, but community leaders decided that burning was inappropriate, as fire in Dakota myth represents a constructive life force and should not be used to destroy. Durant signed intellectual, excuse me, intellectual property rights over to the Dakota, and they instead decided to bury the wood in an undisclosed location. And Olga Vizo would later write about this experience. She stepped down from her position following this incident and she writes here in an editorial in the New York Times um, about how the museum's reaction might be a more progressive reaction than uh, the case of uh, Donna Schutz at the Whitney. Colonization of the West operated through the mythology of manifest destiny and the frontier. Under those ideological imaginings, the West was just empty, ready for colonial 
conquest, ready to be colonized. The problem with the mythology of Manifest Destiny and the frontier was that they were structured upon an imagined erasure of indigenous presence, which thus justified the forced removal of indigenous people. Durant, in his embrace of remembering, regardless of his intentions, seems to forget that there are people there who already remember and may not want to be forced to publicly remember again. From one protester, quote, it's really traumatizing for our people to look at that and have it just appear without any warning or idea that they were doing this and it's not art, end quote. An editorial in a local paper further explained the problem, quote, Minnesota has so successfully wiped clean its awful treatment of Dakota people that no one, no Walker curator, board member, or patron raised the issue of what actual Dakota might think. The history of art, and in fact all history, is founded on the assumption that the past is worth remembering, reconstructing, reanimating. It's our job as historians to give life to the past. This episode suggests to me, however, the value of precisely, precisely the opposite procedure, forgetting, deconstructing, dismantling. Dismantling the gallows means finding a way to acknowledge what happened, sure, but also a way to move beyond it. The need for this procedure might be more acute today, in part because of the disruptions of digital culture. Last week, I alluded to the way that all history is now rendered visible, easily accessible. The past is always present on our computers and iPhones. Perhaps this is part of what makes the notion of dismantling, of forgetting, appealing to me. The debate over scaffold, which, se which seemed to shock everyone in the art world, actually repeated and reiterated an ongoing series of culture war debates over the representation of the US-Dakota War. And this is a debate that really the Walker should have been aware of. Since 1923, a painting by artist Anton Gag has hung in the Minnesota Capitol building. It depicts an attack on the frontier city of New Ulm. The work became controversial on account of its depiction of the Dakota as violent. The painting does not fully represent the complexities of the US-Dakota War or its causes, and critics argued that displaying this particular view of history in the Capitol building bestows that narrative, the narrative of the white settler, with complete historical authenticity and validity. It conveys Gag's impression as the official state-sanctioned view of the war. After the painting was sent, sent to the Minnesota Historical Society for Conservation, it was not returned, effectively removing it from the Capitol's walls. Many attacked what they saw as censorship. The Center for the American Experiment, a conservative think tank based in Minnesota, took on the issue, calling the painting superb and historically accurate, and the decision to remove it as incomprehensible. An editorial on their website elaborates, quote, the Dakota did in fact attack the town of New Ulm, and the painting could just as easily be seen as depicting the battle from the Native American perspective. I don't know how Gag's painting could reasonably give rise to an inference that it is a white interpretation. 
Thus do the organs that control our cultural life steadily impose their vision of how American history should be viewed, end quote. Comments from readers attacked cultural cleansing. Quote, the PC, politically correct crowd, has learned much from the Stalinist, Nazis, and Taliban, end quote. That debate closely resembles any number of recent culture war episodes in which any alteration to an object or image is seen as a profane, profane destruction of history as fascism. Indeed, this conservative right-wing response was bizarrely mirrored in the left-wing response to scaffold as put forth by the National Coalition Against Censorship, which typically defends things like flag burning, Maplethorpe photos, etc. They put out a press release. Quote, <clears throat> the Walker's decision to destroy scaffold as a way to respond to protests sets an ominous precedent. Not only does it weaken the institution's position and in future programming, but it sends a chill over artists and other cultural institutions' commitment to creating and exhibiting political, socially relevant work. Even ostensibly voluntary decisions to destroy artwork have ominous implications for creative expression and the need for public debate over contentious social issues, end quote. As the coalition saw it, the decision to dismantle the gallows was a concession to the frightening forces that aim to limit Americans' First Amendment right to free speech. Even if Durant willingly approved of the action, and even if the museum agreed to allow it to happen in consultation with the artist, the act of destruction negates the power of the artist and the museum to argue for free speech and against censorship in all future instances. I appreciate the thinking here, and, all, and I also want to condemn acts of censorship, but I don't think this argument applies to scaffold. The work was dismantled, destroyed, but it was not censored. The artist's intervention was a deliberate choice to remove the work, and I consider that action to have been a performative part of the work itself. As I see it, dismantling is an aesthetic gesture. The art is in the destruction. Durant's position illuminates a counterintuitive approach to the work of art and to history and overcoming it. The site of the gallows in Mercado's struggling downtown is now thoroughly unremarkable. A public library in concrete and sandstone occupies what had one been the open square where the scaffold was constructed in 1862. There is a small park named Reconciliation Park along the bank of the Minnesota River near the site. It contains numerous memorials intended to mark the significance of the location and the gravity of the events that occurred there, a historical plaque and one bearing a prayer, a Dakota warrior dedicated in 1987, a sculpted bison from 1997, and so on. These memorials all replaced a more offensive monument, a carved stone that read, here were hanged 38 Sioux Indians December 26, 1863. 1862, sorry. This monument, this older monument, has been dismantled. But these other memorials seem to me 
unable to match the terror of public hanging or the realities of the U.S.-Dakota War and its legacies, like the forced removal of the Dakota people from Minnesota. Are these memorials and monuments successful at helping us remember? They seem profoundly inadequate. Sam Durant points to a different approach, one based not on remembering, but on finding ways to forget, to dismantle, to escape the past and its shackles over us. I don't mean this in the sense of letting history disappear, but in the sense of forgetting the weight and burden of the past in all of our public spaces, especially when it impacts some people so forcefully and immediately. Who benefits from that imposition of power over them? Does that action, rhetorically coded as awareness and education, celebrated as aesthetic experience, not reiterate and repeat the imposition of power that occurred in settler colonialism? Dismantling is a more compelling gesture. Maybe letting people forget is a better form of reconciliation. Thank you.